Welcome to the Faith Forward podcast series. Faith Forward is a grassroots network dedicated to bringing together leaders of ministry with children, youth, and families for collaboration, resourcing, and inspiration toward innovative theology and practice. Through this series, we'll learn from creative, forward-thinking leaders who are pushing the boundaries and reimagining what it means to follow Jesus' way of love and justice today. Join us as we instigate a revolution of hope in our world. Welcome to this very special edition of the Faith Forward podcast. Um, this is a crossover episode that's a, a conversation with Braden French. Braden is the host of the Work Experience podcast, which is a resource about young people and the church that's put up by the Uniting Church of Australia. He and I sat down together to talk about intergenerational ministry and preaching and how we can reimagine how we live faith alongside people of all ages. Our conversation is not only appearing on the Faith Forward podcast, but also on his work experience podcast, which you can find at workxpc.com. I think it's a cultural difference. Mm-hmm. In America, we hear a lot about uh, progressive youth ministry. Mm-hmm. And, and can you just explain what's your take on that phrase? This is definitely a, a tangent, but uh, when you use that phrase, what are you suggesting? And by way of helping our audience down here, where we probably don't use that language, at least in the church yeah. as much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good question. So um, in, so as an Australian and a Canadian, yep. Um, my read is that the term progressive really comes from more of an of a U.S. context of people trying to move beyond the conservative liberal dichotomy, the language of of conservative okay. liberal, and I'm hearing more of traditional and progressive, or yeah, okay. you know there are other terms. Um, yeah, and and so I just tend to use it of people who are what the way we talk about it at Faith Forward is that we are progressive and forward leaning, um, not to eradicate the past or because the past is terrible, but because faith is living and breathing and changing and evolving, or it is dead. And in order for faith to be alive, it has to adapt and it has to change, but it does. So bringing the, the richness of all that has gone before with it into the present day. Um, that's something that at, at our events was really um, kind of visually present in the spaces that we held it because we were always careful to pick a, um, a main, like a church for our main space that had um, a visual and liturgical um, tradition to it. Uh, not, you know, we didn't want a, a theater or a conference center as our main space because there was something about being in a more historic, um, tradition rich space, uh, you know, uh, location to say 
So how do we carry all this with us into the new stuff that's going on now? I don't know if that is a good answer at all. Um, and I know that, there, see, the, the, the other thing is, um, one thing I, I have learned over the past 10 years or so is that there are many people who use these terms, as you said, right? Yep. You know this because you asked me, what is it? Yep. What, what do you mean when you say progressive? Um, but there are many people who use these terms and disagree with what they mean when they say. <laughs> and so I have seen arguments erupt and factions develop um, over all these people who w are trying to do something similar and just disagreeing about how to do it. But isn't that kind of the way things are sometimes? Absolutely. We are more likely to disagree with the people who are like 99% similar with us than we are with someone who's you know, 2% similar to us. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate that. Uh, you clarifying that that's really helpful. Um, and the good news about podcasts is there's no rebuttal. So you get to define it. And <laughs> yeah, then exactly. that's it. <laughs> like, I'll get angry emails, but um, I, I can choose not to read them. So no, thank you. That, that's really helpful. So what about in your context, you said you don't use that language that much. So so what's the what are things like oh. down in, uh, in Australia? Look, I think Certainly some of our, our close, so I'm in um, a denomination. The closest is probably the United Methodists. Um, okay. We've got a Methodist Congregationalist Presbyterian in our yeah. sort of tradition. You're um, the Uniting Church, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. So which, which is very similar to our United Church of Canada here. Yeah. We steal yeah. a lot of your resources down here. So thank you. And, and um, vice versa. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think, Certainly, uh, some communities and clergy would use that term, and, and they're again, yeah. I think there's a there's an element that they're trying to push beyond this binary sense, but but it does come with the expectation of inclusion, of um, of welcome, of a rich and broad theology, and and I think there is some sense of of a liturgical um, value there as well that's being rediscovered. So it's not quite let's uh, throw all that out, but how mm. do we reimagine this and, and how do we be a, um, a, a church and a community that's embedded in, in our reality, in our community, um, discovering truth for today. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, our Uniting Church down here, we are a very broad and diverse church. So we have uh, on any spectrum, we're well represented uh, which is part of our um, strength and our gift to the Australian landscape. But um, yeah, we will, uh, we, we fight well, um, I think, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, over all sorts of uh, doctrine, uh, over all sorts of, of ministerial practice and stuff. So yeah, it's, um, I wouldn't be anywhere else. I'm not sure anyone else would uh, employ me, but uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly, so yeah, we would have, um, particularly where I am in Victoria, Victoria's, probably the most progressive state socially and culturally yeah. in Australia. And, and so naturally the church somewhat reflects that um, right. in, in our membership and our leadership, I would say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 It's it, to, to me, part of the progressive um, innovative forwardly and whatever yep. kind of thing we want to use is the central to, to that to me is is critique not in a negative way but where you really assess and kind of deconstruct what's going on in order to reconstruct it 
in a way that is more appropriate, more life-giving um, for our current contexts. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. I agree. Now, we should have clarified this earlier. You are a professor? Or you, I am, yes. Yep. What's your yeah. uh, field? What, um, what, what do you talk about, write about, teach about? Right. So that's a really, yeah, it's a good, that's a good question. Um, whatever I am told to do. Um, Fantastic. So I'm at Atlantic School of Theology. It's, yeah. it's a really unique space. It is the, um, the first school in the first theological school in North America to have been created um, across Protestant and Catholic lines. Okay. So we are a hundred percent Catholic, a hundred percent Anglican and a hundred percent United church of Canada, um, which is 300%, but you know, yeah. there's something else out there. That's this three in one idea. <laughs> so we can build on that. Um, so, so I, I teach at Atlanta school of theology. We're, we're very small. There, there, there are only a couple, you know, um, there are about nine of us on faculty. So it leaves about three or so per, um, you know, per uh, department. So I teach in, in, uh, I teach practical theology broadly. Um, And to me, when I talk about practical theology, it's this, this give and take this play between our theological ideas or our theories and our theological actions or our practices. And it's not this one way direction where our theory informs what we do. um, But what we do informs what we think as well. And so it's this back and forth, um, that really interests me between how we live and what we believe. Um, my, my focus has been on uh, ministry with children and ministry with youth, intergenerational ministry as well. Um, but I also teach, uh, I'm the, the main homil- uh, homiletics professor at AST. Okay. Yep. So I teach preaching courses. I teach um, kind of intro to worship, qualitative research. Uh, so all sorts of all sorts of things. But every couple of years, I get to do a course in children's and youth ministry, um, which is kind of my, um, you know, where my heart has been for, for most of my academic career. Okay, excellent. So uh, listeners, uh, Dave knows what he's talking about, or at least knows how to present that he knows what he's talking about, which we... It's one of one or the other, for sure. <laughs> we deeply <laughs> value that here on the podcast. Now, um, we're going to... Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, it's no coincidence that uh, places you as a really helpful person to talk about uh, intergenerational ministry. And we're going to dive a little bit into preaching in there. So it's handy Mm. that you're a practical theology professor. But um, before we get there, uh, we've been asking all our guests to simply give us uh, their understanding when they talk about intergenerational ministry. What what does it mean for them? Because we've read the books and we've had some of the people who wrote those books on, but yeah, what, when you use that phrase, what are you uh, meaning? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to me, central to intergenerational ministry is relationship. Yep. So one of the things um, when, when I wrote children's ministry in the way of Jesus with Ivy Beckwith um, that came out seven years ago. Now um, we had a chapter on intergenerational relationships and the importance of, of, all things intergenerational for young people and for older people as well. That just wasn't the focus of the book. Um, And I remember at one point our editor saying to us, just come out and say it already because we were kind of beating around the bush. And then in the end, you know, we just said it really clearly that the presence of multiple generations in the same space does not mean intergenerational ministry is happening. 
Yeah. So it, to me, it, it's about the relationships. Are the relationships being formed across generational lines? Yeah. Mutual relationships. It's not just a one way. I, so in my read of things, a lot of folks who started um, really, you know, being intergenerational cheerleaders and advocates, um, I, I kind of knew them from the children's ministry circles. Yep. And it was this sense that we who worked with children and, and did, you know, worked with those who, who were on the front lines of children's ministry, we knew how important um, relationships with non-parent adults are, right? Like yep. Search Institute, um, developmental theories, like it's all telling us yep. that young people need these relationships, right? Children, teenagers, they need this. But adults need it as well. Yes. And so that's one of the things is there's this mutuality in the relationship that needs to happen, that it's not just that the adults see it as it benefits the children, but the adults have to get stuff out of it as well. It, it has to be um, this give and take. So, and if I can go on a little tangent then for a minute, By I, all well, means. maybe invite you to go on a, a tangent. <laughs> um, I know that your work has been mostly with youth ministry. And I find that really interesting because um you know, like I said, in my context, a lot of the intergenerational uh, conversation came from people, or at least not, not all the time, but in, in a number of cases, it's folks who were focused on children's ministry. Yep. Um, so how's that work with adolescents? Um, what do you, you know, how, how did that, how did you get into this intergenerational conversation? Uh, yeah. It's certainly, um, it's certainly true down here as well that, that a lot of the, the people advocating and really leading us in this space um, have a background in children and families ministry. Um, and part of what we're trying to do here is, is uh, highlight the opportunities and then the real tangible benefits for ministry with young people. Um, I think, and depending on context, I think I also come to this conversation realizing um, the benefits um, if we, if, it's an unhelpful separation between youth ministry and youth work, but recognizing that the social and the personal benefits for members of the congregations that intergenerational relationships provide as well. So in terms of faith formation, but um, very much in terms of um, mental illness, in terms of mm. uh, building resilience and capacity in terms of navigating um, life's changes in terms of developing identity, doing that in community with those who, either who have gone before or those who are um, going through it for the first time actually, you know, makes it a little easier, gives you some signposts mm -hmm. and gives you some um, cheerleaders and some support. And so there's this, yeah, there's this sense that actually we can do, I, I hate the phrase doing life, but, but in a very real sense, we can do these, these life um, things together. And, and so there's this benefit there that um, if those relationships are, are, are real and are reliable, then it equips all of these people to, um, mm -hmm. yeah, to, to do that. And, and I think that that's the ideal for the Christian community. I think uh, for adolescents, we know... Um, you know, that there's a time of intense change and, and formation and, um, and with that comes pitfalls as well as opportunities. So if there is a community that is willing to just unashamedly love that person and unconditionally support them, 
um, as well as teach them the faith and the ways of Jesus, then I think there is just only benefits there, I think. And, and the, the sense of opportunity. I, I absolutely uh, think that mutuality point you brought up is really important as well. So that the other generations might also be taught um, by the emerging generations that they might, um, yeah, really listen and, and, and go with them. I think there's, there's all sorts of benefits as well. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm not suggesting that grandmas need to go to the skate park um, or that we all need to be on Instagram and wearing skinny jeans. But um, I think that we want to do this in community. And I think um, it was actually John Roberto gave us these sense of these three spheres. So family, peers, and the intergenerational community. And that's been a yeah. really helpful framework because um, yeah. often family is an afterthought, particularly in youth ministry. Um, and, and, you know, going fully digital has really exposed that, um, mm-hmm. at least for our church. But yeah, I think um, there's a, I can only see benefits if mm-hmm. there is this genuine mutual trusting relationships um, mm-hmm. in the church community for adolescents and for everyone else. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So skinny jeans are not required, but they're certainly encouraged if people want to go that route. Uh, look, I've, there's, a, there's, a, there's a space there's a space for skin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, not in my wardrobe, but uh, it's been a long time since I had any sort of social cred with teenagers. That right. I've, I've got uh, my kids are six and nine, so I've, I'm uh, I'm uh, that um, yeah that desire. So um, that's fine. I'm not yeah. I'm not allowed to walk them to the school gate anymore. So you know that's uh, I'm learning what it, I'm coming at this again from a from a parent now. So the whole thing changes yet again. So, yeah. yeah, it's um, it's interesting, though, what you were saying about um, the, you know, your take on intergenerational and um, it, it makes me think about how we even got here. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that we're really up against in the West is the the way that consumer capitalism has just infiltrated the church and what we do. Right. Yeah. And and so, yeah, the, the sad part is those of us who are. Uh, and I include myself, who are, you know, pushing the intergenerational, um, you know, program right now are, you know, earlier in in my career, um, when I was a children's pastor, I was the professional and I had the degree and I I knew what to do. And so I kind of worked against what I'm now trying to, um, what I'm now trying to do because this whole idea of the professionalization of ministry and the compartmentalization of the ages, which is really kind of, you know, aspects of the broader post-World War II, and then especially like the 80s and 90s boom in, in mega churches and stuff like that, right? Where ministry became professionalized, uh, churches became bigger, you could separate people by ages. Um, but it just goes to show that this is a cultural thing. And there was a time when we didn't need to talk about intergenerational because it just was yeah. um, in a lot of contexts and is still in many parts of the world, yep. but in, in a lot of Western, more Western affluent, especially contexts. Um, we've kind of said we in the church yeah we can we can do that faith formation stuff we can teach your children how to be christian 
um, <laughs> we don't need to get other people involved as much. Yeah. Um, and, and now, and now we're saying mm, maybe it was not the right decision in the end, good intentions, <laughs> but there are some roads to certain places paved with those intentions. Ah, uh, well, um, I mean, in youth ministry, every 20 or 30 years, we get to say, Oh, we made a mistake. So, yeah. um, but if I, I'll throw another tangent in, um, what you were just talking about there, uh, down here in Victoria, where um, Victoria, Australia, um, mm-hmm. we're finding uh, those similar issues when we begin to talk to our migrant communities, particularly from right. the Pacific and Asia, um, who in some in some situations, you know, two or three generations have been uh, living here, but uh, the intergenerational conversation is a little tricky in the sense that. Um, they still come as come to church and, and see faith formation and, and spiritual development uh, through a family lens, through a community lens. So they're certainly multi-age communities, but the intergenerational conversation uh, sometimes rubs up against the sense of um, the respective elders and that knowledge and culture is passed down mm-hmm. and that, that faith is so intertwined with, with, um, culture and identity and family history. Um, so in some senses, the, the, the conversation around mutuality and reciprocity um, sometimes rubs up against that. So we're, mm-hmm. I mean, it is such a privilege and a rich experience to, to have those conversations around how we as the Western church can, can learn and can continue to come back to our assumptions and our best wisdom um, with much more flavor and depth um, as as the world the worldwide church or at least in our experience you know the migrant or church or those living in diaspora can can continue to shape our practices and our best wisdom so um, yeah it's it's certainly a, a fascinating um, uh, conversation as we again try and lean forward um, mm-hmm. and imagine what what this looks like and the church we're being called to be um, yeah so it's, it's been a, it's an interesting, and, and we're sort of right at the, you know, this is an emerging conversation for us um, that, that will continue, you know, for a number of years, I think as, as our leadership and our demographics continue to change as the second and third generation um, migrants, particularly out of the Pacific and, and, and Southeast Asia off, uh, step into leadership roles in our church and teaching roles. Um, I'm, I'm hoping very soon I'll be able to go take a back seat and just Mm. watch that's, that'd be the ideal for me. I think, yeah, hand it over and and let someone else figure it out. So it's really interesting um, to me that highlights well, the relationship of intergenerational with intercultural. And I often talk about like when I'm, when I'm speaking or I'm teaching on intergenerational um, ministry, I always say it is more, you know, more radical than we realize. Um, because it's as difficult, it should be as difficult, if we're doing it right, it should be as difficult as doing real intercultural ministry or real interfaith ministry, because it doesn't matter whether we're talking about age or culture or religion. It fundamentally is about bringing people who have different worldviews and different assumptions and different ways of living in the same room and saying, you all have a seat at the table. Yeah. Um, and, and you all have a, you know, this, this kind of, this round table, this egalitarian, metaphorically speaking, right. This yeah. round table <laughs> where, where it is, it doesn't matter where you're from or what age you are or what faith you practice that you, 
um, you matter and you have a, a say. Um, but it's, it's certainly difficult work for that reason. And, and I mean, this is something that Chris Barnett, um, who is the one who connected yeah. you and I together, um, he talks about um, through actually the work of the United Church of Canada that they've done around interculturalism yeah. and how there's a difference between cross-cultural, multicultural, yeah. and intercultural. And he's, he kind of uses that to say, well, can we say that there's cross-generational multi-generational and intergenerational and they all kind of make a step toward the 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 true relationships that we imagine um through intercult or through intergenerational yeah so um i did some uh, work with some uh, anglicans on the other side of our continent over in perth when we could travel um mm-hmm. which feels like a long time ago and and that those phrases were actually really helpful sort of pathway for them to identify and and particularly those who are setting out on this journey or who are, you know, maybe have read a book and, and can see mm-hmm. the benefits to actually say, well, let's, I don't know if baby steps is the, is the a helpful phrase, but yeah, what's the first step we could take here? Where, mm-hmm. You know, where, what's achievable or what might be an opportunity for us mm-hmm. and then to continue to build and, and, and yeah. So yeah, no, I definitely. And, and yeah, we, I shamelessly, steal Chris's stuff all the time. He's not really on the internet. Um, so I can steal his material and he doesn't know, although I, I, he has been tuning into the podcast. So g'day Chris. And uh, thank you. Uh, intergenerational preaching. What's your elevator pitch? And then we'll, we'll see where we get to. Yeah. Well, to me, it's about, <laughs> so I don't know if I have an elevator pitch, but I have a story. Great. Um, so I, and again, it goes back to Chris. Um, so Chris Barnett and a few other folks said, we want to have a meeting with people who are at the forefront of intergenerational ministry. And we want to have this, this round table. Um, I don't know, maybe it wasn't just metaphorical. Maybe there was a real round table. Um, and so 20 people gathered together in London in May of 2019 to have um, two days of conversation about intergenerational in different parts of the world. And unfortunately my schedule didn't allow me to go, but with the magic of the internet, I could participate at a distance, which is what everyone is participating in everything. Uh, Like, you know, that's how we're doing it now. Um, So at one point we were broken into small groups and I think there were all of us from North America were in one, one group and we were talking about things and I was doing a lot of listening and someone made a comment about how it was just, you know, preaching is just the one thing that is they're finding is getting held up. You know, we can, we can figure out how to do music and different parts of liturgy and, and you know, faith formation, all that stuff um, in an intergenerational way. And yet, the resistance has come from preaching or, you know, that it's essentially to become the final frontier. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I, I teach preaching. I wonder if I can contribute (laughs) in this way um, or into this gap. Yeah. So, yeah. So I started thinking about, I I sent out a survey to different people and got a bunch of responses from people who are doing intergenerational preaching. And my favorite ones are people who are like, I'm not a preacher. I don't really do preaching, but this is what I do. And so I quickly realized the first thing we have to do is expand our ideas of what preaching is. Yeah. 
because everything that everyone submitted in this questionnaire was 100% preaching, 100% proclaiming the gospel, <laughs> but a lot of them weren't sermons. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's the thing is, is there, there's a, yes, we can, we can preach intergenerational sermons, but a lot of really great intergenerational preaching is not a sermon in the way we know it. It's not what Doug Paget would say, speeching um, from the pulpit, right? Yep. So, so that, yeah, so I sent that, that call out and, uh, and I've been working with that, trying to figure out what are the values that people, so I'm not doing so much of a prescribing what to do. I really wanted to get a sense of what are people in, around the world actually doing to be yep. intergenerational preachers right now. And I'm trying, I'm right now, I'm working on a book that, that combines that work with some theoretical work and some contributions from some of the best folks out there who are modeling it um, in often in quiet, very faithful ways, not wanting or seeking a bigger audience. Um, but their ideas and practices are totally worth a bigger, you know, they deserve it. Excellent. Uh, yeah. um, no, I have this theory that that one of the issues seems to be that that um, that normal church, whatever that means, <laughs> seems to have um, the the sermon has been reduced to an educational moment. That yeah. that somehow we we've limited uh, you know all of our Christian education to you know if we're lucky twenty minutes once a week. So, um, you know, and, and history and tradition tells us that there better be good exegesis and there better be, you know, good application and it better reveal something of the grace of God. And, and you know, we're chocking it all in to this 20-minute um, super sermon. And, and no doubt preachers and ministers and, and lay preachers feel that pressure. Mm -hmm. and, and so then, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't want to sit through a 20-minute exegesis every week. But certainly yeah. younger generations, um, that it doesn't resonate with them. It doesn't connect and inspire them necessarily. Yeah. So, so how do we get here? And, and is, it, is there a parallel conversation here about how we reimagine education um, within our church and, and discipleship that, that liberates something of the, the art and the craft of preaching and, and our sermons so that they, you know, we can rediscover... Um, and storytelling and, and and other aspects that that could in fact engage all all participants meaningfully. Right. Right. Absolutely. So yes. You know the the first thing that people need to think about whenever they're doing anything is what's the point, right? So yep. the, the, that's the especially in Protestant circles, right? With the Reformation and and you know all the little Reformations after that. Yep. Um, when when theology of the Eucharist changed from it's really Jesus, it's not bread and wine mm. to, well, it's bread and wine and Jesus to it's not Jesus. It's just bread and wine, but symbolically it's Jesus. Yeah. Suddenly church, and this is just my, I'm not a historian. So uh, apologies to anyone who is. That's all right. Um, I'm studying church history this semester. So I got your back. Don't worry. Oh, tag team. Okay. Yeah. So I, it's week two, but we're fine. We're fine. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, where are you like 300 yet or we'll, we'll, uh, yeah, I, I'm coming up to Eusebius. I oh, don't even okay. know who that is, but, um, yeah, it's coming up. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. <laughs> uh, it's a great name though. Yeah. We, so, so 
essentially my take on things is that within Protestant circles, when the theology of the Eucharist um, became less elevated, something had to take its place. And what it did was the preaching moment. So that's, I think why it's the final frontier because we within our, and maybe this is just ministers because we're the ones actually up there doing it. Um, But there's something sacred about the preaching moment that is different for a lot of people than other spaces, uh, than, than other liturgical, other parts of our liturgy, right? Preaching is just part of our liturgy. It is, but it is something that Jesus did. Um, even though he didn't really give sermons, it's not really a sermon on a mount. It's, it's more a bunch of sayings thrown together, but, or put together carefully and lovingly and faithfully by authors. Um, but he, um, the, the, so, so I think that's why there's this, it, this difficulty with actually changing preaching. What that means, though, is that deep down, there's a sense that it's important. But we don't often talk about why. And so, you know, in looking at the literature around more contemporary approaches to, or contemporary homileticians, I found out that, and, and other people have said similar things, that there are three broad reasons why people preach. The first is to immerse people and to invite people into God's story, not just scripture, but the way that that story connects and informs as it, and it is informed by our contemporary life, right? Because we are technically an, uh, an open canon. God did not stop speaking. Um, And so God's story is still living out among us. So we invite people into that story. Um, sometimes what we do though, is we end up just exegeting the hell out of that story. Um, and, and verse I mean, by verse. Exegete the hell <laughs> yeah. Out. yeah, so that it's only heaven left. Yeah. So, um, the second reason why a lot of people say preaching is important is because there's a transformational aspect, something it, it has power to change who we are as ministers, as preachers, who are our hearers, our listeners are and how they follow Jesus and the, what we as a community of faith do in the world. So it can change the world. Um, the third, and this is the most contentious and it's not universe, as universal as the others, but there's still a lot of agreement is that it's an experience of God. And this is the scariest, I think the scariest part of preaching because it has nothing to, this, this is where it really shows it has nothing to do with us. And it's all about what God does through us. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so preaching can be a moment where the um, it can be sacramental in that it reveals in a visible, tangible, through the human aspects of, of life, like words and speech and listening, the intangible, um, transcendental reality of God breaks in the world and we experience God in, in some way. And different people from different traditions um, and theological bents disagree about what that looks like, but yeah. there is actually widespread agreement that there is um, some way that God can be experienced through preaching. Now, once you have those three things that preaching invites people into the story of God, it transforms people and the world, and it actually can become an experience of God. Suddenly we can say, well, we don't have to do it the way we've always done. There are different yeah. ways of doing that because a speech or a 20 minute exegetical message um, with a few dry jokes 
is not the only way to make those things happen. Yeah. So that's to me, that to me is where the power of intergenerational preaching comes from. The fact that young people, their presence by actually taking their presence seriously in that preaching moment, that gospel proclamation in worship changes or it challenges us to change what we do. Because the truth of the truth is we think, Oh, well, it's not really good for kids and teenagers. So we'll just put them, you know, let them leave, leave and do their own thing. But if it was really good for a lot of adults, I think there'd be more people at church. So it's not an age thing. It's It's so good. (laughs) There's a lot of people of many ages that what churches do, what they, what they do for preaching is just not fitting. Yeah. And there are great preachers out there who are fantastic at, at kind of, I don't want to use seeker sensitive, but people who are not used to, you know, people who are new to church, people who are skeptical. There are great preachers who are fantastic at the messages for the faithful week in and week out. But young people, their presence, teenagers, children, forces us to say a 20, 40, 10 minute, whatever speech is not working because yeah. well they can't sit through it well i'll tell you and it's not dawn but other yeah pastors, no not dawn yeah, at all not dawn <laughs> um but there are a lot of messages i've heard that i struggle to sit through too i just have the uh i i am older and therefore more able to control myself and not social etiquette. i do want to get up and run down <laughs> the, the aisle um yeah I have a sense of what's expected. Um, So I think that's the thing is once we do, once we do that, the the floodgates open up. There's so much in that. I've just been, my neck's getting sore from nodding and laughing. And yeah, I'm going to grab that little um, one liner. Um, That'll be our new uh, promo track. If it was, uh, if it was good for adults, there'd be a lot more um, or whatever your exact phrase was. Uh, That's really encouraging. As soon as we are willing to lay down, some of the assumptions about why we do things and, and how we got here, then we, we do. I, I love the, the idea of leaning forward, of, of, of pushing forward to say, well, how might we do things uh, tomorrow? Thanks for tuning in to the Faith Forward podcast series. If you want to learn more from creative thinkers and innovative leaders, be sure to subscribe or visit faith-forward.net.